I love the I love the whole like line of yeah. Plot and uh, you, you tying that together at the end, I was like, holy shit! <laughs> that, that is that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, that was a really cool callback. It comes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you, Whatever you grab, grab just turns to dust. dust. Like eye contact with a stranger, stranger around a corner. It's a dream that you to be Passing over the songs. Glimmer, glimmer, shift the ship in the sea. Think you saw it, saw it. Think you see it, we see it. Well, hey. Welcome. Welcome to the shores. To the shores. Here we are. We got Cheers, boys. We got Charlie with us. So... We haven't had a guest on this show in probably two years. Well, Allison's been on, I think, Allison's a few times. Allison's been on yeah. a few times. But tonight, we are blessed by the presence of our good friend, Charlie Parkin. Mm-hmm. It's an honor. Charles. Glad you're here. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you going to do this this interview in your real British accent or your <laughs> American British accent? Yeah, the, the, the American British accent... Um, I, I feel like I feel like I'd run out of mileage on it, but what I hear most from Americans is their version of me, which is, "Hello, my name's Charlie. I'm from England." <laughs> that's what my kids say you sound like, <laughs> but that's not how you sound. And I just want to clear up right out of the gate that you are not—you did not, in fact, bite that little kid's finger. <laughs> Depends who you're talking not to. Not that Charlie. Depends who I'm trying to impress. <laughs> Um, however, I do remember the first time I asked you that, if you were Charlie bit my finger, Charlie, I don't know why I thought it's just, it's so stupid of did, me. Did I embellish or did I? No, uh, but uh, you immediately informed me that while you were not, were not that Charlie, you were in fact in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, there was definitely a period of time, maybe it, it probably if you ask some friends, it's ongoing where that's the first thing I tell everyone. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah. So, so tell, tell us what, 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 what were you in the Charlie, uh, the Charlie movies, the, <laughs> Charlie the, the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I like to refer to it as starring alongside um, the the Harry Potter cast. But when I was eleven, they filmed it at our school, and I uh, they needed extras because we were the same age as the the the, the, the main cast. Mm-hmm. So fifteen of us or so got to got to be in it because uh, the the our schools in the grounds of of, of a cathedral, Durham Cathedral. So they had uh, had a bunch of us act in it. So I was I was in Hufflepuff, <laughs> nice. much to my dismay. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and actually ended up getting some some coverage about Harry Potter because uh, twice actually there's two, two bits of media coverage. Uh, one was because my brother was sitting outside the auditions reading his Harry Potter book, but was too young to be in it. <laughs> Local news filmed a segment with us. Uh, and you know, poor, poor Tim was the phrase. <laughs> Cause Tim, Tim's my younger brother. Your younger brother. Yeah. And then the second time, <laughs> poor tiny Tim, my, the, the following year, cause my sister was able to be in it. She was also an extra. She's five years older than me. And we, my family, went on a family holiday to Australia. So we got some family there the year after we filmed and we filmed <laughs> uh, and my my parents had told the family that we've got that live in a tiny little town seven hours from Sydney inland called Dubbo 
and when when they picked us up when we got off the train they said before we go home we got to take you somewhere and they took us to local news station <laughs> where, no way. where they interviewed us and 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 in australia <laughs> in australia That's and produced funny. a segment in the paper the next day which was local stars visit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. yeah so so for that for has that anyone ever recognized you for being in harry potter certainly not no <laughs> you have to inform them yeah they, yeah yeah which i do yeah <laughs> as you should uh, well, I, I kind of want to just jump into some of that story stuff here if you want to do yeah. that. Yeah. So you're, you're, about to, you're about to go back to the UK, to yeah. Great Britain, to the England, to the island. Well, let's just do a, before we jump oh, into yeah, the story totally. stuff, let's, let's explain <laughs> who Charlie is. Yeah, who Charlie is. <laughs> and uh, yes, you're about to move back to Great Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Fed's finally caught up with me. You've been here for eight years, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, just under eight years. In Austin the whole time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd spent time in the U.S. before that um, on, a, on, on, on summer university work and, and following, um, selling, I mean, that was, that was selling kids' educational books door-to-door mm-hmm. that for six years or six summers. You've got some great stories from that time period. There some, yeah, there's some fun ones. Maybe we'll get into it. <laughs> so you are, uh, I'd say, an active member of the dance community Correct. here in Austin, yeah. which is how we know you. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Because Michael and I, <laughs> well, <laughs> despite the fact that Michael and I are not active members of the dance community, Michael's <laughs> wife is. Yeah. So that's how you became part of our world. Yeah. Yeah. We were on the same dance, same salsa team uh, and performed together for a while. So for, for about three years, two and a half, three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun to watch you guys kind of grow together and like y'all's, y'all's uh, uh, expertise now that you'll have in salsa and batata and did you do other ones? Did you do Zoot? And there were like? a few others, but that was just, we just sort of dipped in and out. Okay, those. gotcha. But it was mostly uh, bachata and salsa that you were really yeah. into? Yeah, I mean, when I first started out, because <clears throat> uh, I think I was maybe dancing for two, three years before I joined the team and, and, and met Alison through that. Um, but when I first started out, I was doing six or seven dances a week, just mm-hmm. kind of diving in and going going deep. But you know, you have to be realistic with your time and, 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 and really it came down to, I asked a few teachers if I had to be, you know, a bit more scarce with my time and or more intentional with my time, where are the most universally danced, what are the most universally danced, uh, styles, salsa and bachata, just given mm-hmm. the pervasive, pervasiveness of art and culture. So, yeah. So just settled on those. Why, why'd you even ask that question? Like, what do I need to spend my time on? Cause it, yeah, I didn't, I knew I enjoyed dance and, you know, from pretty early on doing it, I actually initially just joined it because I, I, uh, uh, I was on the, I was on the wrong side of a bad breakup and so needed, needed somewhere to focus mm. my time and meet people. And, um, so I thought, thought it'd be short term, turned out to be long term, really enjoyed it and, and, and wanted to ask, wanted to find out if I'm going to spend my time doing this where can I do it if I live anywhere mm-hmm. and where can I do it or what can I do regardless of age hmm. and those styles probably salsa more so than bachata but those styles were the ones that, that, that came up most when you say regardless of age what do you mean when I asked that I intended I wanted to continue dancing 
in perpetuity. So, and there might be other styles which you kind of like. They're more focused toward younger generations. Certainly. So you would kind of age out of the community. Yeah, and you know, even within you know, Zook, for example, is a style that is a lot more sensual. And so it lends, <laughs> That's a seventy year old. <laughs> yeah, it, it lends yeah. itself yeah to to you know, I'll probably get shot for saying this in the community, but to more single people and to mm-hmm. uh to, to younger people. Yeah. And even within Bachata there's different styles. Um, you know, Dominican is far more acceptable, let's say, mm. at, uh at, at any sort of age or, or relationship status. <laughs> and then you've got much more central versions of it that uh. might not be it's interesting that you <clears throat> asked that kind of specific question. Like once you realized that you were interested in doing dance, like, okay, well now let me try to pick the place where I'm going to spend my time. Uh, it's so intentional. And you, you seem to me in a, a number of ways that I can think of to be very, both very exploratory and open to experiences. But then once you decide that you want something to be a part of your life, you then get very organized and diligent about it. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I don't think that was always true. Mm-hmm. Um, which probably is, um, maybe say maybe typical of, 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 I would assume most people as they age, they feel they need to be more intentional because right. scarcity becomes more and more real. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd admired people that had focuses in areas that they were excited by and passionate by and Mm -hmm. passionate about. And I hadn't found one. And when I found dance, it, uh, I'm not going to say dance found me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So romantic. (laughs) When When dance found me. (laughs) When I, yeah, when I found that, I really, I think it's the click as well. (laughs) Um, yeah, when I found that, it, it just it just felt, I, you know, I, I, it made sense to double down because it it had, it had been a while of I I didn't want to be one of those people when asked what they're interested in was you know hanging out with my friends, mm-hmm. uh, which I think it was maybe a bit of a way motivation a bit of toward motivation. Okay, so you were motivated in part by doing something so that you could say that you did something when asked what you do or what are you interested in? Um, well, you need to have some interests to be able to respond with, right? Probably. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, I actually think that that's a really excellent reason to get into something. I mean, it's like you're noticing that, well, I get asked questions like this and I don't really like my answer necessarily. And so what could I change about myself so that I could change the answer? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of other ways that you might solve that problem for one, like lying or exaggerating, <laughs> you know, um, or just saying, well, are my interests aren't aligned with this person or something. So, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jordan Peterson responding to somebody asking him how to find a, a mate, a girlfriend or something. And his response is basically like, you're focusing in the wrong place. Make yourself the kind of person yeah. that you want to be, the kind of husband that you want to be, and the right wife will essentially find you. Mm. Yeah, so or, like or, or even the one beyond that is focus on the kind of person that the wife you want would want. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah. So it sounded like something, something changed that, that kind of led you to more of that perspective. Was it like a certain moment or, or 
that kind of led you to kind of be more focused? Because it sounded like you were, you, that was something that's kind of was m- more new to you at the time when that started changing. I don't know if it was a, a certain moment so much as uh, I've traveled a l- <clears throat> quite, quite, quite a lot. I spent a lot of my life traveling um, from 16, 17 onwards for, for work, for fun. And through that, naturally, you meet people where regularly where you're consistently putting forward a version of yourself versus with your friends, you don't put forward a version of yourself hmm. uh, or, or at least present a version of yourself um, in an intentional way each time you speak to them. It's more of a, uh, an organic acceptance. So through meeting consistently a lot of people and you know, moving, moving to the US was probably part of that too, um, realizing that I just more and more I was telling people you know a version of myself that I didn't necessarily align with you know it's really common for people to talk about how important it is for 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 people to travel there's so many sort of surprising and maybe unexpected benefits of being in places that aren't your home in places where you're a stranger but I hadn't really ever considered that one just the repetition of first encounters and it seems like through that repetition you start to see how you see yourself and then you might have positive and or negative feelings about that like i'm seeing myself this way do i like myself that way is that who i want to be gives you the opportunity to figure out where you might need to change to become the person you want to be that's a pretty cool realization yeah I, you know, I don't know if I was consciously considering it right. at the time, but yeah, retrospectively, I also think you articulated that far more eloquently than I did. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, just recapitulating your thought, so I can't take any credit. This for is it. what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah the, I suppose what's interesting about that is with the with the travel because I spent a lot of time you know, most of my adult life between the UK and the US is um, scarcity of time becomes more and more a thing. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'd spend from 17, 18 onwards, three months in the US, back to the UK, a month in the US, back to the UK. And now it's in reverse where, well, until, until Monday, when I'm moving back to the UK, it's it's been more time in the US and scarce time in the UK. And whilst you're presenting a, ver- a version of yourself each t- each time, you or I have find it hard to give or make time for myself to change that version mm-hmm. because of the scarcity of time. I'm. I don't know if this is the direction everyone would go, but it drives me to spending more time with people and. Uh, less time doing something for myself right um, so it's uh, you know talking this through it's a uh, uh, an interesting catch 22 perhaps where it's you can have a realization but I in in that struggle to create the time to to make any resolutions to that if that makes sense yeah it occurs to me too when you talk about the scarcity of time you and I are kind of in a a similar short-term position right now in that as we kind of discussed on last week's episode i was caught up in the the great 
layoffs of the tech industry in mm-hmm. 2023. And so I've been out of a job, um, not working currently. And you are in between jobs as you move back to the UK, you're starting a new position. I hope you don't mind me bringing that up. Yeah. Um, just start today. I don't today, know why you would. Actually, oh, you yeah. did start today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you've also had a period of time where you haven't been working very much or maybe not at all. Um, I have found, and I'm just curious if your experience with this, I have found that over the past couple of weeks, uh, time seems somehow more scarce than less, even though presumably I have 40 hours extra time that I'm not giving to a employer right now. Hmm. Has that felt that way to you? Yes. Yes, it has. And, but you know, part of that I think is it's, it's been, it's been uh, a function of circumstance in that whilst transitioning jobs, I'm also transitioning countries. Mm. Right. And there's definitely a lot that comes with that, that I hadn't necessarily considered. You know, I thought it might, be a little bit easier than it is just to sort of pack up your stuff and move. Mm-hmm. But, you know, strangely enough, it's not. Um, but, you know, also the, 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 the lack of structure, I think the structure with more defined working hours, uh, it's uh, schedule equals freedom is a, a, mm-hmm. a saying I've heard a few times where it's, you know, if you've got your, your, your predefined schedule laid out, then, um, and your and your scheduled free time within that, then it almost feels as if you have more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the removal of that, yeah, I, I think it's it's. I found certainly as if I'm I'm mm-hmm. struggling. Um, yeah, the lack of definition. A schedule gives you definition. It gives you the ability to perceive the time that you have. And without that schedule, without that definition, I think it's harder to see the time you have. Yeah, I mean. It, from a perspective, uh, uh, perceptual, from a perceptual standpoint, I had a hard time getting those words. Out. <laughs> um, which just, I'm struggling with this thought, but it's like nothing in, in a way it's hard to tell what things are until you categorize them and like name them. That's the same thing with time. It's if you don't give it a schedule, it's hard to say, what's what, or even how you perceive it's passing. Yeah, I would definitely say like, since I like getting married and having kids, you do really have to like structure your time in a way. And and then you have to find the things that are valuable. Like what you like, kind of what you're talking about, like, okay, if I'm going to dance, like, and I want to do this the rest of my life, what do I do to spend time doing? And I think too, is like whenever, you know, with kids, business, you know, marriage, it's in, there are certain obligations that you have and, you know, ones that you want, but then also like, what, what do I want to do with my free time? Um, and that's, that, that becomes, it's limited, but that also becomes more valuable because you, mm-hmm. you the, the value of it kind of goes mm-hmm. higher in your mind, which, you know, in college, like we all were like, that's like, Oh man. And it's like, you just kind of do whatever, whenever, and then you have to go to class or something like mm-hmm. that. And, uh, but you had so much more time than you ever did, you know, as you, as you get older and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's, I think it just, but also, I, and I, th- I think that's why I'm so curious about your, your choices as far as like, like why you, you wanted to, or kind of what brought you to that idea of, of 
I need to go deep. If I'm going to do something, I need to go deep with it because I'm <clears throat> oh, sure I just lost my thought. <laughs> <laughs> that lane went, that lane went nowhere. <laughs> Whatever you do, do it deep. <laughs> do it deep. <laughs> New slogan for the podcast. Yeah. Or <laughs> dating app bio. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your decision to move back both from a personal standpoint. And, and I'd like to hear a little bit about the, um, well, you said at the beginning, the fed got me <laughs> like the, the sort of legal ins and outs of why you are moving back. Cause that's a part of it, right? Yes. Yeah. I've been, I've been at my current company for eight and a half years and you know, which objectively, if you look at tech related roles, which are not entirely tech, but tech related is, is, is quite long. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for sure. Um, I think I'd, I'd stayed for a while cause I was, I was, I was proud of, of what I was doing. You know, I'd moved to the U S to start a team and was responsible for a, for a long time for building that team. Um, to, you know, from, from, pretty much from, from scratch, uh, our, our, our America's sales team. And that was, you know, that probably kept me there certainly longer than, than a lot of jobs. But then, you know, you layer on top of that, the embeddedness in, you know, where I found myself with relationships and a life in a new city. Mm -hmm. And it added a pretty challenging dimension when it came to decision making hmm. so professionally I've, I felt probably realistically probably for two or three years I'd be ready for do, to do something else and uh, but I always thought whatever it had to be <clears throat> because I don't have a green card and I'm on a, on a work related visa um, whatever it had to be would have to be a big profound new job because otherwise that's it's not worth leaving what I've got with the relationships in America yeah to yeah it's not worth leaving those which effectively paralyzed me a little bit because I I would only accept huge for the next step whereas um, in reality when people move jobs, that that next step doesn't necessarily have to be monumental by any means. It can just be the next step yeah. that gets you to the <clears throat> step beyond that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so the, the decision to go um, push and pull factors professionally uh, over the last few years. I wanted to do something. You know, it's become more and more apparent to me that if I'm spending the majority of my waking hours on something, it needs to be something that I care about. And that thing industry-wise became mental health. And the thing sales uh, function-wise was, was sales, because that's what I know in sales, sales leadership. So the push and pull factors, the, the pull factors where I found a job that aligned with that in a really great way. Um, I know the founder... It's a, it's a mental health startup and, and it, it was a great opportunity for, for a lot of reasons professionally. Uh, it aligns with you know, the kind of area that, or the stage of business that I'm excited by, which is the chaotic early stage growth and making sense of that and, and growing it 
and then there were push factors professionally which is you know I was starting to clash with with people in my organization I, I, I wanted to go different directions in how to run run things um, and then you know professionally personally personally is is the question mark I'm still not entirely sure personally how I will feel um, you know the US and Austin is the closest I have the closest groups I think of, of friends that, are, uh, that I've ever had mm. I have very close singular friends in the UK in a couple of small groups but in, in the US I've, I've developed a few of the closest groups um, that I've ever had and so um, that was challenging to leave um, but you know also looking for you know you know realistically, realistically the stage of life where I want to, uh, a, a relationship and um, I haven't found that in the US and I don't know if that's because I've had a one foot in one foot out, foot out mentality for a few years or if it's because I don't know maybe maybe I'm looking for an English girl not sure <laughs> uh, I said a lot there so I don't okay. know this, this, these are considerations that I've been in and out of for two three years so well I admire this sort of the same intentionality that we were talking about earlier with your with your dance that you're applying to your own life and your job um, is there a big difference between American girls and English girls <laughs> You you said that in a in a way that was it just sounded more sophisticated than most taxi drivers ask me. <laughs> Is that a common Uber driver question? Uh, yeah. Um, what is the difference? I don't know. I think just I think, for those listening, Charlie's blushing right now. <laughs> I, I think I think how to alienate an audience I think Brits are Brits are funnier it's okay uh, you're leaving <laughs> yeah exactly that's the thing Brits are funnier yeah, what are you guys going to do kick me out yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I think Brits are Brits are funnier on, on, on the whole interesting yeah obviously you know present company excluded <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not that funny so I, I'm okay with that <laughs> um, but I don't know I mean I, you know the, the, the people I've dated I've dated a few English girls whilst being in the US and those relationships have been more substantial hmm or meaningful to me than um, American relationships that I've had. Here's me worried now about Sorry, where, where the podcast is ladies. going. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you send this to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious. Like, as far as I mean, it's, it's in relationships, like, what are you? What do you kind of? What do you kind of look for in a relationship? Is that is that something that? here in the u.s is that would that be different from when you're if you were in the uk is that is because it seems kind of more of a temporary place is that is it harder to 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 kind of intentionally be long-term or or more in-depth relationship focused I, I, yeah, I don't know i'm just curious i haven't actually figured out yet if I haven't figured that out. I haven't figured out if, <laughs> if because I have felt temporary here and I've never really committed for more than, you know, 18 months at a time in the US. Um, I haven't figured out if, if I haven't ended up in a, a more longer term relationship because of that or because there's some, you know, difference that is material to me. Hmm. Um, 
you know what I, you know what I look for in a relationship would probably align with basic traits that most people would 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 align with you know challenge humor mm-hmm. um, I, you know I do I do think in in general which you know it's it's sex or gender agnostic um, Americans are more demonstrative with their feelings than Brits and that is something that I have aligned with hugely because I you know I have have friends that I've you know my my male friends in the US would say I love you on a fairly regular basis Mm. not so with my UK male friends Uh, you know I go to therapy in the US whereas in the UK and you know maybe it's a generational gap as well you know my parents would consider it a luxury Mm. um and a lot of people in the UK, it's it's more stigmatized to them. So the demonstrative nature that I find appealing in Americans could also work against me. I've found relationships that I've had in the UK where the women have been able to challenge me and uh, uh, you know make light of a demonstrative approach. I also find that appealing. Are you saying that? I think I'm hearing you wrong. Are you saying that making light of a demonstrative approach, you are saying that you're more aligned with that approach and that's less common in England, which relative to other relationships and the way that women there interact with other men, it feels more deep, more quickly by contrast. Yeah, I think you are hearing me wrong. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. I, Yes, Americans are more demonstrative, um, and yes, I find that appealing in general with friendships here. I, I, I like that, but I, you know, when I, I used to relish in going home to my English male friends because they would just take the piss out of you. Re- exactly. <laughs> good, good, good use of our vernacular. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Yeah, um, which I would relish. I would, I would yeah. love. <clears throat> You know this. You know, it would be a sadistic pleasure for me to be <laughs> you know, ripped to shreds. Um, and you don't see that happening as much here with n- with American no, men. Not as much. No. And, and and you know, with women, I I, f- I find the ability to go deep. I can't remember our new slogan. Uh, <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> Whatever you do, you do, do it deep. deep. <laughs> <laughs> Their ability to go go deep. <clears throat> Whilst I find that appealing, I also find the inverse appealing with British women, hmm. you know, the ability to rip me to shreds hmm. Hmm. and not just go, go deep. Yeah. I wonder why, I mean, there's something a bit sort of stereotypical about masculinity that you sort of expect men to take the piss out of each other. Hmm. But as you're saying that, it does seem to me like that doesn't really happen in current American culture. And if it does, I think it's probably relegated to certain industries Hmm. like Like blue collar and stuff, construction Mm -hmm. and service workers. And um, maybe it's started to be considered inappropriate among, um, well, so like my world is tech office world, office culture, you know, you don't you don't behave that way. It's not acceptable. But I wonder if we've lost something in that. I mean, I think that there is an important value for men specifically to 
essentially harass each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not exactly the right word, but yeah. to challenge each other. It, it, there's a social dynamic that's like, are you socially competent enough um, to take an insult and not take it so personally that it destroys the relationship? Mm-hmm. Can you distinguish between a jet, like a, uh, a spar and an actual fight? Mm-hmm. It does seem like, like men kind of skate that line between the very same thing you just said. We could be like at blows about, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there's a, there's a sort of teasing of that, like s- that space. And you always know it with guys. Like if you if you've crossed the line, it just all of a sudden it it, it starts to shift and change. And I, I think that's something that you kind of learn to negotiate at, even in your youth, as far as like you know you're taking the piss out of somebody, and all of a sudden it changes. And also then the person who's taking the piss out of them changes, and also and you can kind of tell the escalation is coming. And I think it's something that you learn as you know with with men is like you know okay, I need to tone that down, bring the escalation down or fuck it. I'm going to go all the way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm, going to instigate this, you know? Do you feel like, um, men in America are more emasculated than men in the UK? I don't think so. I don't think so. But okay. I, I, I feel struggling to to understand the lens through which you're looking when you're referring to emasculation. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate? Yeah. So I think there has been a sort of boy and men crisis mm-hmm. for a number of years. Um, and generally when I think about these things, you know, I don't really think about the differences between America and other places because I don't really know many people who live other places and America is my home and that's where all the people that I care about are. So I don't think outside of that, but, um, you know, the, the number of men enrolling into college has fallen far below women. Um, I think men in general feel purposeful, purposefulness purposeless yeah. <laughs> purposeless and um toxic i think culture has been telling men that they that what makes them men is toxic for a long time and the result is that i see, i think there is a lot of men who feel like it would be dangerous or bigoted or at worst like oppressive for them to show strength. And one of the ways you can show strength is teasing your male friends. And we're sort of observing that's not happening here as much. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's differences in other places in relation to the boy men crisis in the UK beyond, you know, taking a piss out of each other. I think, um, I think in, in let's say in big tech, it's pretty pervasive on both sides of the pond. Yeah. Because the, you know, the leadership's the, the, the same, the values are attempted to be mirrored. Mm-hmm. You know, leadership of one company will, will, will try to have the same approach. Uh, 
so I think you know through through in the realm of if you look through industry then I think it's pretty similar on both sides mm-hmm. from 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 my experience yeah yeah god there's so many there's so many places you can go with this it's 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 interesting because I feel like there's like there's a certain idea that there's a civilizing for men over the thousands and thousands of years um and something that we've talked about quite a bit is sort of men don't really have those coming of age sort of moments and they have to be worked into culture right where, where women that's sort of built into mm-hmm. them biologically. And <clears throat> so it, it seems culturally it's, it, we've kind of acquiesced into more of a feminine culture and not that that's necessarily bad, but uh, I think that's where you kind of lose some of the masculine components of it. And you could argue like probably many, um, you know, I think that's some of the, the softening of some of the more masculine culture and business that has been in the past. But more recently, I think it's definitely <coughs> become more, more feminized and just not male, female, but feminine versus masculine. Um, so like, you know, I think we don't really have, I mean, this, this is this is hard to talk about this conversation because there's so many elements that kind of come into this, and that in school, like boys are meant to sit still at a at, at a desk, and it just, um, you know, a lot of the literature just talks about, you know, usually women or girls are are lo- a little bit better at that than most boys are, and again, there's the whole idea of like testosterone and estrogen, and there's there's all these body things that are kind of going on. Yeah, it just reminds me. Uh, because the educational system has been geared towards more feminine ways of mm-hmm. being. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I heard somebody recently making the case that most therapy has been, has started to become that way as well. Oh, that's very fascinating. <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> I sucked a little bit of whiskey down the wrong <laughs> hole and I'm struggling. Um, well, that, if someone's depressed, for example, you know, the, the recommendation to that person might be, well, you need to take self care. You need to take care of yourself, maybe take some time for yourself. Um, and that's a very feminine thing in reality. What most men need if they are depressed is responsibility. Mm, Purpose. They need purpose. They need a mission. Mm -hmm. Um, which is sort of the opposite. No, I think that's super fascinating. And I, I, I think there's a part too, is like, as we're talking in generalities, it's not that women don't need purpose and responsibility or that, you know, it's not good for men to take time for themselves. I think it's just, it's just kind of more of a tendency, um, toward just even evolutionarily speaking, it's sort of like, you know, no matter what tribe or, I mean, there's obviously some <laughs> except like small exceptions in all these things, but like, like men were the risk takers. They went out and they, they, they found the food and they'd be gone for days, you know? And, and there's something that, that is in that, that I think because also we're not able to, you know, give birth and bring life into the world, you know, I mean, that's like, that's a huge purpose right there in and of itself. Like you're bringing life into Mm -hmm. the world, into the generations, into the future. And, you know, men have a part in that, <laughs> but it's like, it's, 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 so it's, I think there's that, there's that purposefulness that we, that, 
I think is evolutionarily kind of built into us. Mm-hmm. And that's why sometimes until you said that about therapy, I feel like that kind of, that kind of like frames some things I've had problems with, with the, the idea of therapy is that it, that kind of doesn't make sense to me in mm-hmm. a way. Um, but I, I, maybe I should, I should turn that over to you guys. Cause it's something that I, I, I just have a, I have a problem in there and I, that, yeah. that kind of, that kind of frames that for me in a, in a different way. It reminds me of, there's a Ray LaMontagne song that has a lyric that says, a man needs something he can hold on to a nine pound hammer or a woman like you. <laughs> and I think that is such a perfectly constructed line. It's like, give me something to do or someone to ca- to love someone to care for. Mm-hmm. That's the essence of purpose the essence of responsibility. You know, and if you listen to a song and it, it replaced man, a man needs to, with a woman needs something to hold on to a nine pound hammer or a man like you, you'd be like, what? It wouldn't make any sense to you. Mm-hmm. Why did you say that? You know, when, when you ask, Chris, when, when you ask about the, um, <clears throat> men in the U S or the UK being emasculated, were you looking at that through the lens of workplace age. I know we spoke about kids in school. Was there a, mm, a subset that mm. you were looking at there or, or, or something that, yeah, a subset that provoked that? No, I think it was a general question. Um, hmm. I'm a bit hesitant to respond with the first thing that came into my head, but I'll just go for it, which is that, <laughs> but I will anyways, <laughs> uh, personally, I, I feel personally emasculated, mm. um, somewhat by interactions at work or accusations of privilege based upon my, the fact that I'm a male, um, that goes all the way back to high school actually. Um, but also just having gone through divorce with kids, um, the system is set up to emasculate men and put them in indentured servitude to their ex-wives. And I think, you know, maybe that's another, I don't know if I want to say causal factor, but you know, with divorce rates as high as they are, I think that probably the majority of men Mm. who have children have experienced that now Mm. because the majority of marriages end in divorce. Mm. I think something like 60%. Yeah. Super high. So you've got a large percentage of men who should be in their prime let's say somewhere between 35 and 55 in their prime, in terms of value to the community, um, moving into a stage of life that's productive and generates wealth and security and starting to accumulate personal maturity and wisdom. And we have essentially designed a system which incentivizes women to, in that situation participate in the emasculation of their ex partners so as to 
secure, more legally mandated support. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think maybe I, I don't, I didn't ask the question in relation to that specifically, but maybe that's a bit of the position that I'm coming from. And, um, yeah. And also maybe it's just not my personality. I, I don't tease all that much, even with my male friends. And I'm much more likely kind of, as you, as you said, like I, I'll tell my male friends that I love them all the time. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I was asking that from. It feels like when you said you don't tease that much, like teasing would be considered a core masculine attribute. I know we spoke about that. No? I don't think it's considered a core masculine aspect. No. no. Okay. No. But I do think that it is, there's utility to that behavior for right. men. There's a sort of a correction element to that. You know, when mm-hmm. you tease, when you tease somebody, it's, it's sort of like a, like a joke. It's, it's sort of a half truth. Like there's, there's in, in any good joke, there's sort of like, there's something half true about it. Yeah. And so you're kind of like in teasing, you're also saying like, you know, you're, be, you're saying you're better than this or, you know, here's where you fall short. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And you, you, and that's a part of, that's the whole part of taking that teasing is sort of like, it's a kind of a humility aspect of like, yeah, you're kind of right. And you're also kind of wrong. You know, it's like, it's like, mm-hmm. there's a sort of like give and take of sort of like, you're both right and wrong and you kind of give it back and forth. And so there's sort of a correctiveness that happens because both people know that I'm way overstating this, but yeah. at the same time, there's some truth in this. Yeah. And there's a playfulness in that teasing yeah. that, you know, it's like, yeah, well, uh, go ahead. I was going to say just, I mean, I think that I agree. There's a, a, a playfulness, a humility, the uh, 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 part of that is based on understanding humility, but it feels as if both, uh, between and within sexes, that's a way of, um, you know, feeling someone out and understanding, um, <clears throat> your boundaries of them and, and men and women certainly do that to each other mm-hmm. um, to be able to understand <clears throat> you know I think Peterson was talking about this w- women will do this to men they'll deliberately push their buttons to see their levels of patience and their levels of kindness mm-hmm. yeah. because you know one of the I think it's uh, economic economic ability not necessarily economic status currently but economic ability um, kindness and I forget the other factor are the statistical main reasons that women will, or main th- attributes women, women look for with men, and 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 sounding them out and through through teasing and testing is a way of understanding, you know, are you a good future parent? How right. if you if you like this with me now, how will you be with with our kids? Um, are you playful? Are you resilient? Are you anti fragile? Yeah, anti yeah, fragile. Yeah, which I think is also yeah. C- c- you know, can you lead? Can you take this? Yeah. And, and also probing for the masculine attributes that they would want to find. And perhaps those that I think in the workplace, those are suppressed. Those, mm. those interactions are suppressed. Um, you know, certainly in, I think in, in, in big tech and in, in certain situations I've experienced, erring on the side of safety is encouraged mm-hmm. and teasing or associated is, is, suppressed sometimes certainly rightly because it yeah. can lead the, <laughs> totally the, 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 the wrong way um 
but you know, it, you know, in the last two months, I mean, Matt, you mentioned this earlier. You know, I haven't haven't been gung ho, having you know, having resigned and mm-hmm. effectively been working my notice. I've noticed that I've loosened up and teased my team mm-hmm. a lot more, mm-hmm. and it almost seems to. It certainly strengthened the relationship, mm. but in, in doing that, every time it happens, it's always you know a bit of, and, and we'll tease each other. It's always a bit of, you know, sort of judging our judging our, or, or, or testing our relationship. But there's a um, th- there's a lot of appreciation when it happens in mm-hmm. both directions. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think I meandered a bit there, but in answering either the question that I asked or you asked, I think the emasculation, I don't know about between countries, but um, I think that inability to, to tease and test boundaries. Yeah. I don't know if it just, I don't, I don't think it just hurts men. It hurts both, both parties. There. Mm, totally. Well, as I was thinking about what's the distinction between the two and generally speaking, when you tease and test those boundaries, I think the main distinction in that is that with men, it might get violent, you know, with between men and women, that is very rare, you know? Um, and then between women, that's, that's even rarer. So, or maybe it's just as rare as between men and women, but I think that's something that is a distinction between men teasing each other versus women and women and men and men, women, you know, it's like, uh, <clears throat> Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. As long as we're sort of roughly in the territory of comparing the United States and the United <laughs> Kingdom. Roughly. Tenuous. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have spent a little bit of time in the UK. I have really only two weeks, actually. So a very little bit of time. But I'm curious how you would compare America and the UK in terms of the feeling of freedom when you're there. Other than Bud Light, <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah! <laughs> Do you America. drink Bud Light? I always hog hunting. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, true. You, you got there before I did. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, think I, I was quite proud to have <laughs> the most. I think American American picture I've ever had taken of me, which is post or mid hog hunting. Yeah, <laughs> with my gun and my Bud Light mm-hmm. in the in the back of a truck. Oh, so with awesome. a hog versus <clears throat> two months earlier I went uh, shooting in the UK for the first time and you wear plus fours which are three quarter length uh, green trousers and stuffed into your, your, your boots you wear a tie you wear a flat cap Sometimes yeah, you a showed, suit, a suit jacket. You, you showed me these two <laughs> pictures back to back, and it was an amazing yeah. contrast. I would so much want to put this on our Instagram just yeah. to show that. Well, yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> I don't you, know if that would go out. You, you also well. wear little. I don't know what they're called. Uh, they were described to me as little flappy bits at the top of your boots, but they're uh, you know two, uh, one or two inch long bits of felt that you put onto the side of your calf. Uh, that's you know yellow or, or blue, some sort of standout color. And the point is, it's to give the pheasants a sporting chance. Ah. <laughs> but it adds to the regalia when, when, when you get the photo of the full get-up, yeah. and then side by side with the hog hunting picture, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's an amusing contrast. So, you know, with regards to freedom, mm-hmm. you're, you're more free to shoot with less yeah. pomp and circumstance. Well, maybe, I, I feel like that's not where you're going with the question. No, it's not. <laughs> but I like um, the answer. I did like the answer. So, one of the things. 
that I, that was in my mind in the back of that question, back of my mind in that question. Yeah. I love the first way you said <laughs> what's my mind is backwards tonight. Um, so when I was there, I, I noticed cameras everywhere when you're driving. Mm. And I asked the person that I was staying with about the cameras and they basically just said that, uh, traffic tickets are essentially automated. Um, yeah. So if you're speeding, it will take a picture of your license plate, mail you a ticket, and take a point off your driver's license. So there's a point system for driver's licenses. And if you uh, lose all your points, you lose your license. And I just thought <clears throat> it was kind of horrifying to me because the there's some of that, like there's red light uh, cameras that will automatically send you a ticket in some places <coughs> in America, but by and large that doesn't happen in, in America. If I'm driving, I can speed if I want and bank on the fact that there's no cops around, but it seems like that there's a level of, you know, I, I actually spent those two weeks driving around. I rented a car. Um, and it, it just felt like, Oh, like I had constantly felt like, Oh, I can't mess up. Otherwise, I'm going to get dinged. And there doesn't have to be anybody around to see me. <coughs> I'm sorry. My throat is... It's uh, I have some water. It's just still like tickling from that whiskey that I sucked down the wrong way. <laughs> um, do you feel in general, and I'm not talking about like in sort of legal ways, but just the feeling of being here versus being there. Does the feel... Does the feeling of freedom feel different? My mind's racing on the direction to go with this because uh, I think there's there's a lot that comes up. So, f first of all, interesting, you know, acknowledging that point on the security cameras or the, or the cameras, uh, it's not not something you know because it, we're used to it. It's not mm -hmm. something we tend to notice. But almost every American friend that I've had who's visited has noticed that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, on the, the, the driver's license point, yes, I think it's 12 points on a license. You lose points for a certain thing. You can lose a license for a year. Um, I've, I rented a car about a year ago. I haven't driven in the UK much uh, for a weekend trip. And turned out, I think I was fined about $400 for, from just driving around I, 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 I granted I had been above the speed limit so yeah, yeah. sure um, but also got driven through a zone that I wasn't meant to drive through mm -hmm. in London where maybe they highlight that or it feels mm -hmm. like more of a revenue generation exercise but anyway I mean that's, I'm going down a, a take your tangent with that the freedom point um It's hard for me to tell, I think, because I'm, I'm not, I don't have the same liberties as a, as a citizen. So there are certain things that I can't do here. Hmm. Um, there, I'm, I'm also, you know, my feelings or judgment might be slightly clouded by British perception of America is very different to how America is. Hmm. Um, but the, you know, a, a, a the gun laws is, is the biggest probably talking point that comes up mm. in the UK versus US and the, the, the 
Because you can't have a gun in the UK, right? You can. You can have a. You can have a, a, a rifle. You can have a shotgun. You can't have a handgun. You can't have anything mm-hmm. you could conceal. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, you could argue the, the <coughs> benefits of that or otherwise. Yeah. Um, so our, 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 we don't have a constitution, and it feels as if in America the. Um, the presence of a constitution with its amendments allow or give the yeah give give its citizens something to hold on to more hmm. potentially in the um, yeah poten- potentially <clears throat> specifically with reference to freedom so the example that's heralded by some Brits that are surprised by it is gun laws, for example, based on you know, the right to bear arms. <coughs> I realize I'm picking on this one, but it's, it seems like it, it seems like an easy one as an example. Right. Um, that's based on an amendment. I don't know when that was, that amendment was added, but that's been based on an amendment because we don't have those, we don't have a constitution in the UK. The laws move with a little bit more fluidity, uh, which means the government can do more of what it wants um, because there's less opposition to laws being added because it doesn't conflict with certain amendments. Does that give the illusion or the feeling of freedom more or less? I don't necessarily think it does because, you know, if you were to ask your everyday run-of-the-mill Brit, they would, and, and you compared the UK with the US, most would probably fear the perceived negatives that come with freedom in America mm. more than they would champion its positives. Mm. And the, the, you know, the thing I add to that is America awards, awards exceptionalism more than any country on earth. If you're exceptional, you can reach the top of your game economically in an art, whatever it might be to a far higher level than anywhere else you could reach it on earth. However, the social safety net doesn't exist mm. in the same way as it does in other countries mm-hmm. so the there is i think there is more freedom um but there are uh perceived and arguably objective concerns that could come come with that too i realize i, I don't know if <laughs> i think that's well said yeah, yeah i agree yeah i think your point about america having a constitution and the uk not having one is a, is really interesting i got <clears throat> Growing up here, I never considered living in a country in which you don't have <clears throat> the Constitution rights, yeah. and the Bill of Rights. And it's, it's interesting <clears throat> because that is sort of what the people own. And, and by extension here, we own the government. Mm-hmm. And the, the Bill of Rights is actually a list of things that the government isn't allowed to do. It's a limitation on the government, not a list of rights granted to individuals. And without that, it, <clears throat> it seems like government would feel a lot more top down than sort of bottom up, which is the way that it, it was designed to be here. And maybe it doesn't feel that which has changed. A lot it's changed a lot mm-hmm. over probably the last two decades. Mm-hmm. I could probably make an argument for that, that changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but fundamentally, <clears throat> It does feel like 
my freedom exists in the, in the constitution and bill of rights. And I can always point to that where as in freedom in the UK, well, it exists so long as it's allowed to exist. There isn't something <clears throat> fundamentally supporting that or limiting or limiting that. Mm-hmm. But, but I also liked your, your point as far as the, the, uh, spectrum that that provides, because I think, like you said, that you do, you might have more like freedoms and not, not that you said this, but this is kind of what I was kind of, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but, um, like freedoms in the U S however, there's also, also a consequence that comes with that. And it's a lot more apparent, you know, than, you know, if you have something that's a little bit more restrained, also the consequences are not as pronounced. And like you said, with the safety net, I think that's a really good point. Like, like there's, there's, you have the ability to truly, to really, um, experiment and, uh, shoot, how do you say it? Like, I'll just say it this way, like experiment and do something extravagant and over the top here. But at the same time, because you have that ability, also the social safety nets are not as, um, are not as apparent or are there for those who might need them. We were having a conversation, I think on the podcast a number of weeks ago about the idea of risk and how risk is necessary in order to do something fully mm-hmm. like <clears throat> because it might seem like what you just said that uh in america you have freedom to try things mm-hmm. whereas in um, china or, it, well yeah. in let's just stick with the uk mm-hmm. where you have a, a greater social sta- safety net mm-hmm. you would think that with a greater social safety net you would be safer to try new things but that really isn't the case the, the the safer you are, the less likely you are yeah. to try something new. So medicine is a great <clears throat> example of that between like the UK and the United States. Like if you're looking for like the top surgeons in the world for some specialized mm-hmm. something or another, you're going to come to the United States for that. Right. However, in the UK, and I've heard this in France, and like you know, it's like man, we were. I think as a visitor, if you're there, they t- they basically take care of you too. Maybe that was just in France, but. Uh, no, so there is such a thing as health, health, health tourism. So yeah. yeah, and it's just sort of like there is that sort of safety net for like yep. the average everyday person. But once but you, you get out of that average everyday like situation, those extremes <clears throat> are not as well. It's it's the as you were saying that I was you know, on, on the exact same thought track. It's the to 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 take away the ceiling, you have to take away the floor. Yeah, and. Perhaps that's why the U.S., you know, in the last few hundred years has created many of the world's greats in pick your field. Right. Perhaps. But yeah, I... I, And virtually all of the inventions have come out of this space. Which which is interesting, because I mean, even like, as you you take this, uh, I don't don't want to go all the way here, but, uh, you know, you think about the kind of what's happening in crypto right now and the, the regulation around it is like, you know, right now, I think in the U.S., we're acting in this sort of restrictive mode. And that's going to push that innovation into other countries and other places. Because when you push 
restrictions. I mean, obviously there's sort of a, a way that you can provide like guidance and, and stuff around that, but you're going to push that into places where people can be innovative and a little bit more freer. However, like in the United States, like it would be better for us to provide guidance and some structure, you know, protecting the investor and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. instead of trying to squash that. So I think that's interesting. God, <laughs> you can also see it like just in how in movements too. you know, like breakdancing started in the United States and then, you know, went over to, Oh shoot. And I mean, now right now it's in Korea. It went over to Europe and they a whole another sort of like innovation happened. And then mm-hmm. now it's kind of more of like in Korea uh, and stuff like that. Same thing with coffee. You know, there was a lot of innovation in the United States, you know, in the UK kind of, we kind of shared that. And then it went to Australia and then, you know, now it's, now it's really in your, uh, uh, Asian, Asia, sort of Japan and area kind of stuff like the innovation that's that's happening so Hmm. super fascinating to see like how you know that's kind of on another note as far as like something rises up and then moves into another space and then there's innovation and that kind of grows but i think that's a little bit different from what we're talking about (laughs) 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 well we started at the very beginning by alluding to a story that you were telling us before we started the podcast and before we get sort of too far down any more rabbit holes. I want to bring us back there. Um, so I thought what you were saying was really interesting about this storytelling class that you were taking and <clears throat> tell us that story. I mean, and, and, uh, set it up with what you said about s- speaking and writing. Mm. Mm. So s- sitting around, <clears throat> sitting around a, a fire in October last year, three friends and I were discussing professionally, what is more beneficial, knowing how to speak or knowing how to write? And we settled on speaking being being more beneficial. So we we you know we thought what are we going to do about it? And fairly 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 quick scrambled Google search found a storytelling <laughs> course in Austin, starting in January. Uh, it was it was over eight weeks for two hours every week, every once every Monday night and, and dived into that. And so I think we've done five, five of them. There's been a few, few missed. Why did y'all decide that speaking was more beneficial than writing in, in a, you said in a business setting? Yeah, professionally. So (coughs) I think, well, it, it was, Probably memory might be slightly hazy given <laughs> the distance, and I think we were probably a couple of whiskeys in at the time as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, it roughly circulated around ability to influence, and typically that's done more face to face. And an, an aspect that came into that was certainly presenting and and sales, and not everyone in that group was in sales. A few few people definitely had experience in it. I think three of the four had, had experience in it. But the the cliche, which I hate, but is roughly true, which is pretty much every interaction is a sale of some sort, um, <laughs> yeah, led us to influence. If, if influence is essential for progression and the communication of ideas and to get your point across is essential, that's mostly done verbally. 
and, and that actually came after <clears throat> I had the, the reason that conversation came up is I had been a bit this is before I decided to move careers I'd been felt felt unchallenged and unstimulated at work so I was looking for ways to improve or challenge myself and had meandered down creative writing as, as a as a an area of focus own I was probably only three three weeks to a month in and you know brought up that as, as an area I was trying to focus on but was verbally amusingly convinced otherwise but that was <laughs> the, the right approach. well it's interesting I think if I had been a part of that conversation I probably would have taken the position that <clears throat> uh, writing is wait, how is it framed more influential or more important. Just more important. Yeah, I, w I think I would have said writing is more important. Mm. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe partly just to be at odds for the sake of the discussion. <laughs> That's awesome. But also, I, I actually think I believe that. Um, I think being well spoken and commanding. <clears throat> The ability to command a conversation or evoke and maintain attention and interest in a room with other people is very important. Um, but the ability to lay out a plan which is clear and articulated and will actually be read and used has far more scalable power within an organization. So my ability to <clears throat> come up with a solution to a problem, articulate it clearly and concisely, and send it out to those who need to know it, that's writing. Whereas I can convince you of just about anything using, let's say, charm or confidence or wit, vocabulary, I mean, all of those I can employ in a room full of people to drive something to a certain position or a certain conclusion. But if I can't, it, it might just be bullshit though, you know, mm -hmm. unless I'm able to actually get that <clears throat> into an actionable state, which is always going to be done through some form of writing. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I was thinking about like when you were saying that, it's like, uh, like at some point after you talked about something, you're always like, let's put this in writing. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, ha let's, 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 let's put it somewhere that we can, so we can remember concisely what we're agreeing to. Like that's contracts, that's, um, agreements of any sort. So I, I kind of take, I kind of take uh, both and stance on this because I feel like writing and being a good writer and to write concisely helps you to be a better speaker. And it's really whenever you have the marriage of the two, because I think the va there's a, there's a higher immediate value in speaking, I think, because there's sort of, how do you get your point across? You're like, Hey, read this paper. <laughs> you know, like very few people are going yeah. to engage writing. Well, when you're generating, <clears throat> generating ideas, mm -hmm. Speaking is the best way to do that. Yeah, and you're and you're kind of wooing somebody in to, to like like well here it is written out and this is what I mean, and then you think about this might this will probably change over time, but ideas that carry across time 
are in writing, you know, but mm-hmm. now that we have video and audio and all these other things, it's like, there's my, that might also be a little bit different in a sense because there's more permanence. And I think that's the thing with writing is there's permanence because that's also the thing with storytelling, you know, back with the Iliad and Homer, it's like, you, or, you know, all your different mythologies hmm. is you're, t- you're communicating these stories <clears throat> so that people can memorize them and tell their children and their children's children so that you're communicating ideas that solidify culture and, and, and how we interact with each other and, and lessons and stuff like that. So, but that was a speaking art way yeah. before there was written. Yeah, I switched my position. I'm with you now. <laughs> I, I, I so, yeah, I was. Um, I was trying to. I'm mentally spinning a few plates as you guys talk, and there's maybe one to put a pin in and come back to you. Okay, and then I want to. The one to maybe to put a pin in is. I posited that speaking or writing are important in themselves, and it, I'd be curious on your take if and, and the reason. I came to that is, uh, I think it was Tim Ferriss, uh, read something that he'd written about if you want to add a dimension to your career to, to, to advance substantially is pair your function with a mastery of speaking or writing. So, you know, that's the illusion of choice that I had. Whereas, you know, maybe the thing to put a pin and come back to is, if, if you were to add a dimension, does it need to be specifically through communication or is there another, another medium or realm that you could focus on? And then with regards to speaking versus writing, the, I, you know, the, the people I was with when the, the decision was made, I've been raised in sales and sales leadership. There's another guy there that was in sales leadership one guy that had been in sales and ran his own company and then there's a guy who was in wealth management so you'd you'd maybe expect three of the four to lean to the bullshit side (laughs) 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 but but but, you know you know the the speaking and you know sitting with us now um it's not lost on me that i'm in sales 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 leadership and you're Engineering is that a fair classification or engineering and design? Yeah, yeah. Which you'd argue that the archetypal processes are spoken and written respectively between mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. So sales maybe, is spoken, right? Yeah, my <clears throat> all of my focus, whether in engineering or design, is putting something into some level of permanence. Right. Whether it's writing code or designing something in Figma. <clears throat> it's taking what's inside and making a representation of it outside. Yeah. And that's done through the keyboard. So perhaps that influences our positions. Mm-hmm. Well, or, or perhaps not your position. I mean, you also mentioned then that you've changed. So I'm curious what changed you. Stance. Oh, I just, I think that they're equally important yeah. speaking and writing. Um, Like if you asked me, like I wouldn't ever want to be in a position to be good at one without the other. Like I think I liked Michael, your point that getting good at writing makes you a better speaker. Mm. Um, (laughs) Third Peterson references of the night. (laughs) I think 
he said that there really isn't a difference between writing and thinking. Hmm. And if you learn how to be a good writer, you learn how to be a good thinker. And if you're good at thinking, then you can think out loud, which is speaking. I, a thought just occurred to me somewhat building off that, which is, I think if you play that in reverse and you, you speak, if you can speak well, you can write well. No, why my mind jumped to that necessarily, but it, 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 it felt as if the importance of conversations where the other person will hold space for you is crucial if you are to be able to think as you would write because if you're competing for that space then you have to speak in sound bites and it's it's you're not able to you know I mean Michael you and I spoke before about how when there is more space you can you know meander a bit more and that's where some of the good stuff comes from mm-hmm. um, you know vocally or verbally and yeah that, that, that just popped up that it feels like it's if you have those relationships or those conversations where someone can hold space, it can allow you to speak as you would think or therefore speak as you would write. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I notice that, and I've thought this several times during this conversation, that when we podcast, I think much differently than I think when we sit around a fire and talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm like a a very obvious it's probably in a lot of ways but an obvious way is i am conscious of the amount of dead air that mm. happens when we're podcasting mm. and you know may, maybe i should let that go and just try to be like not care that much about it but if i'm listening to a podcast and all of a sudden it gets silent my first thought is, did I lose internet? Did I pause it? <laughs> did I pause it? Like, what's happening? And then somebody starts talking, and it's like, oh, because you can't, uh-huh. you can't feel those spaces. Mm-hmm. And I like the way you just said, if you're talking to somebody who can hold space, it's almost as if to say, well, they can feel the space in between the sentences and in between the words. And if one goes for a long time, um, like for instance, uh, when I first said I would have taken the other position that writing is more important there was a space between you and I and you wanted to ask why, but you waited. Yeah. That space would have been a lot longer if we weren't recording. Yeah. And what would have occurred in our minds had that space been longer? Like the origination of some new idea or new question or, understanding you I, know i love the whole thing it's like the, all the different mediums like you know yeah. Charlie and i were talking before is like taking notes you know do you do it on your ipad do you write it do you type it uh or do you voice write it um do you use paper and pen you know there's all these mediums and each medium i find has a different impact on the way that i communicate so even with between writing and speaking and then also podcasting versus you know our post podcast conversation right. And I think that's the fun thing to explore is like how ideas are communicated. Because there's also that idea of if, if sometimes you have to speak things out loud and then you say, do I really believe that? Or, or do I believe it as strongly as I'm stating it? You know, sometimes you'll state something you're like, and this is the right way to do, is it the right way to do that? You know, it's like you kind of like, well, 
in some instances, yes. In some instances, no. So it's like you're playing with, mm. playing with these things. And it's just good to have a group of friends, you know, like kind of like we've had over the years and, and, you know, Allison and Charlie and Matt and I have gotten together many, many nights and just turned around different lots of ideas. And it's just great to have people that you can just pontificate on. I might be thinking this and I, feel, I might not be. <laughs> I feel really glad that you said that, that mm-hmm. there's something different about different mediums. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I journal, I type it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I journal, I write with a pen. Yeah. There's a big difference. And in general, my rule of thumb is, do I want to think as quickly as possible? Hmm. Something's escaping me. I just, I need to get everything as much out as I can. I need high bandwidth. Yeah. I type, but there's something to be said for slowing down because there's an evaluation that happens when you're thinking faster than you can write hmm. with a pen. Hmm. And by the time you catch up to your thought, it, it sort of, matures a little bit. Mm. So it's a different kind of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like podcasting is different than just a regular conversation um, or a phone call is different than an in-person conversation. Mm -hmm. There's other forms of thinking and communicating too, such as sometimes I need to play a guitar. Mm. Sometimes I need to draw a picture. Mm. You can these are all different ways to work out what's in your mind. And that's what exactly what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. How do you express what's in your mind? How do you move what's inside to the outside? Almost like saying like inner being like, yeah. cause like your mind, sometimes like people get hung up on mind and heart and stuff like that, which is, which is something that I think is, you can't have one without the other. In fact, are somewhat indistinguishable in some sense, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there's something in, in your inner being that needs to be worked out and there's different modes and okay. New formulation. (laughs) Your mind is what facilitates the transaction between what's inside Mm. and what's outside. So something I'm feeling in my heart or soul or stomach or gut or intuition Mm. needs to pass through my mind, which is like the, the grand junction station, you know, between, what's inside and my vocal cords or what's inside in my fingers mm-hmm. that allow me to express it. Mm, I like that. Well, and I suppose what's interesting is it can then, you don't, you, know, you don't really think of it as being out once it is out or, or if you are to think about that logically, once you write, you know, you could be, I've had this before, I struggled, you know, struggling to sleep. So I, I will write because my mind's racing and I will write. And I don't think that there's actually a transfer of information. Like it hasn't gone from my mind and it's now on the page instead. But once I've written, my mind is at rest. Mm. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it feels strange that, (laughs) you know, logically it doesn't feel as if it's it's not actually out. Yeah. (laughs) It's not out, but it's still recall that, Mm -hmm. but it's, now it's on the page. My mind is calm. Yeah. That's a wonderful observation. There's a word for this. I'm trying to grasp like, like whenever you, you have something and that you put it on the paper, it's almost like there's a, there's a symbol or uh, uh, a symbol, a symbol of, of that thing. So it's not necessarily what you just wrote, but even just it, it symbolizes that thing. So you almost felt like you kind of like 
all right, I put this in a placeholder. Hmm. Here's this thing. So even though it's like lines and it makes sense and stuff like that, but there's something kind of cathartic about this page now is a symbol of that thing. And I can now come back to this or it's outside of me now yeah. Yeah. in a representative way. Well, there's something to the act of, of expression itself. So even if you were to, you're laying there asleep, you can't sleep, you write. You could just lay there in bed and speak out loud hmm. and maybe it would have a similar effect, I would argue. Prayer. Uh, prayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what prayer is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's similar to, I mean, I think you're making a great point about this, about turning it into a symbol mm-hmm. by putting it into some more... Uh, permanent form. But I I think it's like we were talking about with time and schedules earlier. You give something definition, you give it a name, you give it a form, you give it boundaries Mm. and a category. There's, it changes the way that you perceive it. Mm. It changes the way it changes your relationship with it. It's similar. I mean, it's the same with human relationships. Mm. I mean, you're dating people, and it, eventually you have to have the DTR, right? We need to know what this is. Mm. And I feel anxiety and unrest when I don't know what it is. Mm. And you know, we say, okay, we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Okay, great. I feel great. Mm. You know, what's, what's changed? <laughs> thinking about the space now <laughs> the space <laughs> how, you just gave me this look like how long are we going to ride this one <laughs> I'm here all night baby <laughs> um, oh wow now I gave you that look I've just lost where I was going with it oh, yeah, okay the defining things yeah I mean I think that's a normal you know that's a, a therapeutic or a um, psychological device which is to name an emotion and once you name the emotion that you feel you're experiencing, mm-hmm. you feel at peace with that emotion. Right. Uh, because you can categorize it. And I don't quite know what that necessity is that we need to have the, 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 the labels. But yeah, it transcends a lot of situations and seemingly every emotion. Because if we can label I'm feeling X or experiencing Y, then... It can, it can help. Yeah, we're such meaning and symbolic make symbol symbol makers. You know, I climbed Mount Everest and I'm gonna leave my flag on top. What does it ever matter? You're not gonna go back up there and see the flag. But something about leaving that emblem, something up there. I think they leave flags. I forgot what it was. But you know, there's are you are you grab a pebble from a special place. It's like there's all these things that we do. I do that all the time. <laughs> you do all, like, really? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I was, was laughing at myself oh. <laughs> just the other day because I have a little collection of rocks on my uh-huh. <clears throat> dresser. Smuggled out to national parks you shouldn't have taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely some of them are. Um, and I was laughing at myself. I was like, what are you, eight years old with your rock collection? Like, look at you. <laughs> but we are. We, we, it's so necessary. And it's like how societies are formed. Like we need certain ways like in formulas to interact with each other. And once you start blurring the lines of, yeah. of what those interactions are, that's where societies fall apart because we need symbols that we, that we share and accept together and that we can interact over that we don't have to keep like, you know, 
arguing yeah, about. <laughs> there's something super prof- profound about that. Like I always thought, not always, but for a long time since I was a kid, I've been curious about the inclusion of, um, in in Genesis, Adam naming the animals. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, why would that be in there? You know, and you might say, well whoever wrote the Bible is trying to explain how the animals got their names, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, but animals have hundreds of names in hundreds of different languages, uh-huh. you know? So what, in, in what language did supposedly Adam use to name the animals? Like, wh- why are we American? including this? Yeah, American, <laughs> not British. <but> American. <clears throat> it's a giraffe. It's a giraffe. God's favorite country. How, mm. how do you people say giraffe? <laughs> well, to, but I think it's a part of that story because there is, as we've been saying, there is something really fundamentally important about naming things, hmm. whether it is I'm feeling this way or I have this feeling or emotion or this relationship is a friendship or a boyfriend, girlfriend or a marriage or And that naming, in the naming is a sense of ownership. And maybe that's why you feel more comfortable and at peace with things when you've named them. Mm. Because you're taking ownership of it and saying, this is what this is. I feel resolved in that I have decided this to be this way. And there is something of that in when you sit down at night, when your mind is racing and you write it down, there's something similar to that. It isn't that the content moves from out from inside to outside. It's that you, you name it, you define it, you document it and you feel some somewhat resolved by having done so. It feels as if there's a link in here between naming um, identity and and self-expression and the (coughs) kind of, I was bouncing around a bit there and I'll I'll see if I can articulate that, but the the self-expression, so naming a child, naming a business, naming a pet, the animals, whatever it might be, is very much a sense of I think self-expression and you know we know that we need to express ourselves through and, and, and you know, express our personalities through various mediums what what we wear what we say how we present what we do what we're able to say to people you know to call back what we were referring to earlier what, what we're able to say to people about what we do with our free time how we identify feels I, I'm, I'm struggling to articulate how to weave that in but it feels all very interlinked so you, you know, the nomenclature if if we call it that self-expression and probably identity seems to be pretty underlined by all those mm-hmm. I like how you kind of connected all of our conversation throughout the whole thing <laughs> basically just then <laughs> What should we so, go? Well, we started this uh, talking about your your storytelling class. Mm. <laughs> so maybe back to that. What? How has that been? And what have you learned? And are you becoming 
more powerful and influential. <laughs> you know, my, my, my storytelling class started exactly one week after I resigned. So I will say my desire to be influential <clears throat> and powerful in the two months notice I've been working hasn't necessarily been at yeah, its peak. Right. <laughs> um, that it's been an interesting experience. The, I think because we, we began very shortly after we, very shortly after we started, we, we began the process of working towards the end, which was to be able to tell a story in a theater in front of probably 50 to a hundred people. That's the culmination of our efforts. And the process of the storytelling class is to be able to choose a story, to be able to explain it in two minutes, and each week that extends by one minute. So we'll roughly be able to tell the story and the finished article will be about six to eight minutes. Is, is it a, an existing story that you choose or one that you have written? It has to be an, ex, an experience that's personal to you. Okay. And I think what I was expecting when joining this storytelling class was how to be able to communicate ideas and personal stories in probably profe- professional social social settings. Mm-hmm. It appears more to be driven towards being able to tell stories in a almost competitive environment. <laughs> there's a there's a organization called the Moth, which is international, M O T H and you you tell stories as comedians would do stand up. Moth well, story hour, yeah. Yeah, it's not that's misleading. It's not just comedy. It's it could pick the emotion you want to evoke in your audience mm-hmm. and, and follow that thread. Um, but what has been interesting is building more structure around your story. You know, to move from an anecdote to a story, it has to have a start, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And you need to be very. I suppose what it's helped me with is being hyper aware of at what point because. Throughout the process of this, you test your story on multiple people. And each time you tell them your story, they're allowed to ask you three questions. And you don't answer those questions. You internalize those or you incorporate that feedback into your story. So Mm. if they say, for example, well, you know, I have no idea why you were at this place in the first first place. Mm -hmm. Maybe you add a a slight nod to, to context. Um, Hmm. it's been interesting to understand the difference between, um, scene and I'm suddenly blanking on it, but you know, roughly, but you know, between scenes, preamble, whatever it's referred to as. And so spans of time that take you to a scene and and when to use scene and when to use not, you know, when to, when to, when to jump through time. Hmm. Um, regardless, for, for me, this culminated, on Monday, this the class finishes in a few weeks. But on, on Monday, I was surprise attacked. My teacher, our teacher, decided to invite the class next door in for me to tell my story because I was, you know, I was leaving the country. Mm. So, sprung on me, twenty-five people from the adjoining class to listen to my story, and it was a, it was a very, it, was a, it ultimately was a very enjoyable experience. Yeah. I'd, practiced it a couple of times, iterated it a lot. And it 
similar to how I, I feel probably more intentional on this podcast as I would in conversation in in normal life and how you refer to civilian life, whatever it is outside the podcast. <laughs> I felt very intentional mm. with my story. And what was also enjoyable was you have by nature of their role, people who are holding space. Mm. So you are able to create the pauses that you would want to outside of a social setting right. and completely shape mm the response because they don't interrupt. Yeah. So it was quite, that in itself was quite enjoyable. And I, you know, I left, it's definitely a bit apprehensive, but I've done a little bit of public speaking before and I left feeling very fulfilled and it felt quite powerful actually. Once I, once I felt as if I'd hooked my audience, I don't know. Well, whether or not it's, whether or not, regardless of the reaction this evokes, I felt powerful mm. telling that story. That's yeah. good. That's awesome. It's a really... Yes, powerful. Yes, intoxicating. But also humble. Hum- I want to say humiliating. It's not humiliating. It's humbling. When you do catch an audience and you start working with them... Hmm it's a different kind of relationship and it feels humbling and it feels like learning a new kind of dance. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, just like you feel powerful when you learn the dance and you start doing the moves and your partner's responding and you're responding, there's a feeling of power there. It's the same when you're on stage in front of a group of people and you figure out how to talk to them and you figure out how to hear them too, even though they're not speaking and you, you're in a, in the, in a conversation with them, even yeah. though you're the only one telling the story. You drew, drew a comparison that I, I hadn't, which, uh, but I, I really, really relate to. And it, it was, uh, I think this is even before, uh, I was on the team with Alison, but there was a, I've performed salsa, and I had performed for three or four years and performed once in San Antonio where I had a lot of anxiety beforehand. There's maybe a thousand people performing in front of Saturday night of a three day event on that same Saturday night, professionals world, you know, beating professionals would be performing on the same stage as me later that night. And I was anxious and fearful and maybe 30 seconds into the dance it felt as if I'd figured out granted part of a team but it felt as if we or I had figured out how to communicate with the audience Mm -hmm. and with a few reactions in the right point that anxiety turned into probably the purest state of of, of flow who wrote the book Chicksack Me High I forget his name but the the, the flow state yeah Yeah. flow state um and, and, and power and I can't remember what else you said, but it was, it was sort of giddy enjoyment and mm. flow. Yeah. And that felt, you know, it felt like a similar process of communicating with the audience when I saw, saw them lean in and I saw them laugh more than I expected them to at the first yeah. punchline. Um, 
at that point it turned from anxiety to all right now it's on <laughs> and I, well I realize you're about to go I maybe a question for later but I was curious on your own experiences because mm. you're a musician and mm. I'm assuming you're speaking from experience when you asked me that it was probably yeah. a project a combination of projection and empathy but yeah well as a musician I have had a lot of experiences where I've performed and I feel like I was berating the audience. Mm. Mm. Like, listen to me. You know, and they're not. And and it's a very immature response to say, to just sort of keep saying, just listen to me. Mm. It's like a child. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a child. And I think... You know, when I first started playing in front of audiences, I had that experience a lot because I'm playing, you know, coffee shops and restaurants and like people didn't come to hear me. They didn't come to hear music at all. They came to get a burger or coffee or whatever, you know, and I was there. Um, And then that carried over somewhat and you feel very despondent and down when that happens. That carried over a bit into actual shows. And then I learned that the proper response isn't listen to me proper response is I need to listen to you. Mm. I need to listen to the people in the room and understand what, what it is that they came for. Why are you here? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? I happen to be in front of a microphone and that gives me a massive amount of responsibility because I'm controlling the sound in this room. Mm. So I need to listen to the room and understand what the room needs. And I have an opportunity to guide it, but I first have to figure out what it is and where, where it is. What is it? Where is it willing to be guided? Um, you know, but I've had experiences where I've been in a room and I have figured out what the room needs. The room is interested in being figured out. And when you hit, just like you said, and you hit that flow state, that connection, the resonance, that resonance, yeah. the conversation starts happening. Yeah. It is like powerful. I think it's powerful for everybody involved in it because there it starts to be an energy exchange that happens between me and everyone listening. But I also think between everybody one to one at the same time, it's, it, it is to be caught up in a shared experience. And that's an amazing thing. Um, something you said there, the room is interested in being figured out. Mm-hmm. I'm curious on that on a few levels. And one is, it feels as if certainly when it comes to performer audience, there's often a, a, a bit of a power dynamic where the audience sees the performer as in charge and they like to be involved in a, and they like to be involved in a positive way. Um, and that could be a nod, a, a, a call out. It could be just being in at one. It could be a look. That's, that's where I went with that initially when you said that. Another thought, uh, second level is I'm just curious where you went with that, what you meant by that. And third is I have experienced performers where 
they have been in half empty, almost empty <clears throat> settings. Mm -hmm. And they have treated that setting as if it were, you know, a hundred thousand sellout crowd. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily appear then that they're working to that audience. Maybe it is they're working to an audience, but what feels powerful is that almost that they don't care. Hmm. And I'm curious with those thoughts or plates spinning, how either you've experienced that or yeah, just general thoughts on hmm. when you've been in a room where someone's playing music and the room is half or all empty and they're behaving as if they're performing to a hundred thousand people. How do you experience that? Is that, do you experience that positively or negatively? I think I, think I need to preface this with if, if, you know, if, this was in a coffee shop and I came in and you screamed, hello, Austin. You right, know, it right, might, right, right. It, it, might, it might not be the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm more thinking if I, if I go to a, a music venue specifically, mm -hmm. um, how I experience that normally is that they've lifted the energy beyond what I thought possible. Yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, when we're taught... I've been taught in sales or in, in general in negotiation to be, to match someone, but try to lift them by just 10% of what they are instead of, you know, to match and mirror them rather than right. go completely beyond them and as to alienate them. Yeah. You need to stay close enough, but just above so that you're always just lifting them to make them feel a bit better about mm -hmm. them when they, when they, when they started the conversation. I'm not saying a negotiation is anything tantamount to a, musical performance but well and yeah. i think there's a similar principle similar, yeah. in which like i'm sure you've you've both at some point seen a musician performing and you can sense that they are disappointed mm -hmm. in the turnout of the crowd let's say or the excitement or the yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you can you can feel their disappointment I think you've also probably been or seen a musician perform where you can feel their arrogance. Mm. I'm hot shit. You don't deserve me. And I think neither of those feel good. And it isn't the emotions that don't feel good. It's that the, the emotions don't match the room. No one came here tonight because we were disappointed. No one came here tonight because we thought you were hot shit. We came here because we want to be out with our friends, because we want to hear live music, because we have some interest level in you and your music. Maybe it's I've never heard you before. Maybe I've been your biggest fan forever. But they, there are all of these potential things playing out. And to the extent that the person on the stage does not match the audience, it feels inauthentic. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's what I mean by reading the room. And to answer your question about what does it mean for a room to want to be figured out? You know, I've played a lot of shows for audiences whose primary interest was partying with their friends. There was music going on. That was a feature of the, of the, the room. 
but they weren't there for me. I was there for them, you know? And so that room doesn't really want to be figured out. Um, I need to figure it out if I'm to add to the experience, but it, but there are other kinds of audiences who want to be figured out, meaning they want to sit and be as fully engaged as they can possibly be, which means I need to figure out how to engage them. And I need to figure out what's the mood here. Mm. Is it, do we need some, a bit of silence to prepare us for the next note? Do we need a story to bring us into the next song? Do I need to address some people in the audience and let some people speak? You know, that's a room that wants to be figured out. Just reminds me of your, your cactus club Mm -hmm. experiences. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And in general, certain spaces actually demand that people sort of behave in certain Mm -hmm. ways. So the cactus cafe, for example, is a good, Mm -hmm. a good one in that there's a reverence about that room something about the history of it. it. When you go to that room, you sort of understand that you're expected to not expect it, but you feel like you should sit down and listen. You feel yeah, yeah. You feel compelled. It's like sanctification, sort of like the room sanctified for a certain experience uh-huh. and everyone knows that when they go there. Right. And it isn't that that's necessarily communicated to mm-hmm. them. No. It's in the spirit of the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even think like our guys night, like, you know, we sit around, you know, six to eight guys and we talk and it's sort of like understood that it's one table, one conversation. Mm-hmm. You allow each person to kind of have their space in that. Or if you're at a, you know, cocktail party or something like that, it's like, no, it's like there's lots of conversations happening. Right. And that's kind of how that space is kind of oriented. Yeah. And if you were to cocktail cocktail party and somebody started speaking like I want everybody to listen to what I'm saying right now you'd right. just be like goodness gracious the hell's this guy yeah. Yeah. there's no conch not here uh, <laughs> <where's the conch? laughs> great Lord of, Lord of the Flies reference yeah. Yeah. Hmm. well we've been going close to two hours should we probably so I mean oh good oh I, I had a, uh, something else I wanted to say and maybe this is a good way to wrap mm-hmm. it up um I loved what you said about telling your, like trying your story out on people and they're allowed to ask you three questions, but you're not allowed to answer. Um, like I kind of want to do that. I want to play that game. Um, and it reminded me of what you were saying earlier about getting into dance in a response as a response to the question, what are your interests? It's sort of the same thing someone asks you, what are your interests? And maybe you don't have an answer or maybe you don't like the answer, but you go out and you find an answer. And then the, the answer becomes the proof of your life. Just like the questions that are asked of your story, will you answer them in the next iteration of the story? So it could be a fun, uh, not just fun. This seems very profound to me. Like, can I ask you three questions and can you answer them with your life over the next six months? Hmm. And would I know the answer? I was about to say, let's, let's find out, but I'm, you're leaving. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but there's a lot of cameras in the UK. So (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, but, 
yeah, let's let, let, let's do it. I, I don't know how this plays out. I don't know how the feedback loop plays out. Yeah, I don't know. But but I'm I'm keen for the exercise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this has been a really nice conversation. Yeah. I love you, Charlie. I love many conversations that we've had. So appreciate you saying it. I love you guys too. Yeah, love you too. Oh, I have one final question. Yeah. What was the dance you did on the stage? That was salsa. Right. And if you're at a Mexican restaurant, you order chips and salsa. <laughs> Slightly different. Okay. Very different. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've been slapped on the wrist. <laughs> that and guacamole. Guacamole? <laughs> <laughs> I can go all day. But. Okay. Well, cheers, y'all. Yeah, Charlie, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having It's been a pleasure. Guys. Yeah. Love you all out there. Thanks for listening. Sure. <laughs> That was awesome. Yeah, that was fun. I love that. That was great. You did great. Wow, that, I mean, that really was, that was great. That was pretty cool. Yeah.